Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor of Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Marcus Intellex, who's also known as Trevino. The man born Marcus K has the rare distinction of leaving a mark on both drum and bass and techno. He pioneered drum and bass in England's north, throwing parties in shady venues where calls for a rewind were often accompanied by blasts from a song of shotgun. But these days, he's producing sleek, minimal techno as Trevino. Speaking to him in RA's Berlin office, it was clear that experiencing both sides of the coin has given him a candid take on dance music, one that's kept him going in the game for over 20 years now. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at resonantadvisor.net or follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Marcus Intellex is up next. I'm from the Manchester region. Um, I'm from a small town 20 miles north of Manchester called Burnley. Um, 80,000 inhabitants approximately. Um, It was actually in the late 80s, um, which is basically when I was growing up or becoming a teenager, it was actually the fastest decreasing populated town in the whole of the UK. Why was that happening? Um, It was a bit grim. It's a bit poor. Um, It was an old... um, town based on on cotton industry way back in the early 1900s and uh, obviously when that dried up it never totally got itself back on its feet it's a warm friendly place but in terms of culture and if you know if you're I guess most people who maybe go to university or whatever don't necessarily want to go back there there's not in terms of industry or or basic business or anything there's not a great deal going on there you know what I mean um it's famous for its 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 football club more than anything else, you know what I mean? Um, and it had a couple of pretty good nightclubs in the late 80s and early 90s um, where people travelled from, which I was involved in at the time, actually. Um, it's quite a hotbed. Just at the beginning of uh, the, the rave scene, around 1990, um, it kind of kicked off in another town called Blackburn, which is eight miles north of, of Berlin. And the guys from Blackburn were, from what I hear, they were, they were all like an organised crime gang but they were really organised and they put rave parties on people from Manchester would probably go to Blackburn parties before they would go to ones in Manchester um, 25 miles away like I say and it was the maddest days probably the the, the, the craziest days of my life just witnessing from, from nothing happening in the late 80s it's been nothing to um Within three years, there'd be 10,000 people turning up outside a nightclub trying to find this party. And obviously, it's way before emails, mobile phones, the whole thing. Just three or 4,000 cars turn up in, in, in an area at 2 o'clock in the morning and we all go searching for this party. Things like that. And mix that in with me experiencing the Hacienda in Manchester. Um, 
completely changed my life. I wanted to be an accountant and being a DJ yeah, <laughs> just right. because of that. So, like, when you were talking about nothing's going on until the end of the 80s, was there literally nothing going yeah, on, no, quote-unquote, well, well, in the, that The city? ridiculous thing is it was the opposite. It was, cr- it, was, it was violence. It was football violence. Burnley and Blackburn, the two towns hated each other. They're eight miles apart. You couldn't go... In fact, I went to Blackburn uh, on a day out with some friends shopping... Um, you shouldn't shouldn't have gone. You just shouldn't go to the other town because if you get recognised as you're from Burnley, you'll get beat up. And we got chased out of town, literally. Um, you could not go into somebody else's town. If you looked, if you're in your sort of late teens, early 20s, you were quite dressy in, into the football kind of... If you're a football fan or if you're into that, the football fashions and stuff, you would just get seen as a rival fan and get the shit beaten out if you got caught or... You just end up fighting, basically. Um, and so that sort of thing dropped off absolutely. after rave hit. Yeah, yeah, it's the same people. The same people just started taking ecstasy and and, and um, all joining in this this completely different feeling where um, people wanted to talk to each other, sort of you know celebrate the scene, um, celebrate the fact that um, they were all doing something that was brand new and, and exciting. Um, and, you know, even though there was realistically still a rivalry there at, at, at the weekend, if you're in the same club and you were from different towns, it, it had no, it didn't matter whatsoever. In fact, um, I do remember there was one guy that we all knew who had a reputation for, for using uh, knives when it, when it was a football fighting. Mm-hmm. And there was one guy from Burnley who got knifed in the same club as by the guy who knifed him. Um, and they ended up talking to each other, which is just pretty crazy because that would have never happened three or four years previous. And that's a real extreme, but it did completely change. Um, the whole social aspect of of, of clubbing and and and, um, and fo- not necessarily football, it, ne- it never really died down, but it was starting to die down anyway. That just kind of helped it really sort of change quite dramatically because it was the same people, realistically. That's really interesting. Like obviously, that period of dance music history gets trawled over quite often, yeah. and it's kind of um, you know, in a glass cabinet like ultimate period. Yeah, but that kind of social effect is really kind of crazy and almost like a bigger deal than the music itself to, to an extent yeah the way it just changed society completely um these people uh, people just growing up basically everybody give up what they were doing to, to go raving you know what I mean? and you know just just the impacts of people going to the bar to have a few drinks that kind of stopped i imagine um the traditional nightclubs lost a lot of money in, in terms of there's people drinking less alcohol, stuff like that. Everything changed, you know what I mean? There's just the, there's just the general, the weekend went on longer. <laughs> you know, just, just you know, in fact, the weekend never stopped for a lot of people, you know what I mean? It, it really, um, I guess it brought drugs more into the line that they'd never been or, or had been probably since the 60s, you know what I mean? Um, it was just so exciting and... It was all, I think half of it was the illegal side of it and people were breaking into warehouses and probably some of the most exciting things for me were actually trying to find the venue, just just being with these thousands and thousands of people trying to do the same thing, police trying to cut cut you off and and put roadblocks up and sometimes there's end up being fights with the police and police cars getting turned over and stuff, which I'm not necessarily condoning that, Mm. but... um, just to, to witness it all, um, it completely changed my life forever. You know, and, and um, as well as the music, this, this actual way of life, it, it, there was nothing before to, to sort to suggest it had been done before. Almost, maybe it had. Manchester and the, and the surrounding areas, and also like other big industrial cities in the north, have like pretty solid music histories. Not just yeah. electronic music, all yeah. 
yeah. whether it's guitar bands or yeah. like avant-garde the grey places the grim you know what I mean and entertainment's massive there you know and you know um, I guess that's part of it. I just, just you know, the le- the less money there is there, the, the less sunshine, you know, the less beaches to go to, whatever. People still want to release, and they find it through different things. You know, I, I think that's the reason why UK musically is a great place because it is quite grey and a bit grim. You know what I mean? For you personally, before rave hit, did you have a sense of that kind of pride in the um, history and cultural output of Absolutely. your area? I was in, I was into everything from Manchester. Mm. I was into, um, kind of bought most of Factory Records, most of the records, or, or not most of them, but I probably had a record from each each artist that appeared on Factory. Um, I was a, a massive uh, admirer of what Tony Wilson was doing, really wanted to meet him, you know, and just, just really sort of struck by what he did for music in Manchester and, and, and the pride that he had, you know what I mean, and the pride of the North. He had a regular... Weekly Sunday night television program called uh, oh Shit, it's gonna go now. I, I should remember it as well. It's pretty bad that neither of us can. <laughs> yeah, but it, that just just the pride he had with it, and and the way he had the first time I'd seen um, Storm Roses was on there live on TV. Um, I went to see them five or six times after I'd seen them. Um, some at Hacienda, just the way they owned the club, the, the story of New Order, the story of Joy Division. Um, which fled me into other things from Manchester. Uh, it got to a point where that's all I listened to for a long time, just, you know, music from Manchester, because that's all I think I needed at the time, you mm. know what I mean? Um, I think that stemmed from from my um, love of the sound of synthesised pop music, like Depeche Mode, and um really big fan of like what Vince Clark was doing a few years before. That kind of led me to New Order, and then from being really into New Order, like pretty much owning every single record of theirs, um, and going to the Hacienda a couple of times, that sort of then progressed through to being into uh, American house music and, and uh, you know, and the early sounds of techno, really. Yeah, sure. Something I was interested about asking with the Hacienda, from you know, it's cool to ask someone who's actually been there, is how diverse... Was the were the styles of music being played like within a single DJ set? Was it quite no, unified or a big mix-up? Um, the first time I ever went, it's quite interesting. I went to see New Order. I was, I think, I was either fifteen or sixteen. I was shitting it. I didn't think I was going to get in. Um, first time I went in the bar was that day. We went into the bar before I went to the club. Um, uh, had a couple of. Um, drinks or so I felt, I felt a bit more like I was ready to get in but I was still like really worried about not getting in because we bought this ticket and I wanted to see what Hacienda is and literally from walking in there um, and what walked into into a factory or a warehouse um, that was just really stylish that was instantly a mind blower it's like you know I'd been to, uh, I'd never been to a nightclub before um, and to walk into there I just think what the fuck's this you know like, madness just just you know, just really, really design, real design behind it. I'd never coming from Burnley. I'd never really seen anything like it. Obviously, um, it was there to see New Order, and I, I saw the gig was okay. It wasn't great. I couldn't see. I was only a little short horse, and everybody stood up. And it wasn't the best venue to actually see unless you're on the tops. But it couldn't get anywhere near the front of the tops because it was so busy. Um, so I didn't get to see much. Just you know, just trying to enjoy the music. But the catalyst was um, when the band finished some music come on and it was um electronic music it was the early sounds of house music mixed in with i remember i remember him playing a mantronics track um no idea where the music was coming from 
obviously the speakers, but there's no idea where the DJ was, just couldn't see what was going on or anything. And um, there was nobody on the mic saying anything. It was just continuously mixed music, which I'm just like, what the fuck? I've heard music on the radio, people talk, people introduce music, you know what I mean? Wherever you go, people introduce music at the time. DJs had a microphone. They said, this is what this is. None of that. Um, and A, not to not find a DJ, B, not to, to hear him, and see only to hear music I'd never heard before, which was amazing. That that was it. I was just like, I need to know more about this. I'm really interested in it. Um, so that really that was the if there was one moment that was pretty much it. What just like right? I want to be. I want to get more into this. Coming from from Burnley, I still lived in Burnley at the time. Um, the only radio I had was uh, BBC Radio One, and I think it was. Maybe Jeff Young's show had just started. He was like the f- person before Pete Tong. It, it, that dance show had just about started, so I'd, I'd been introduced to little bits of it, but I didn't know much about it. I think Jack Your Body, Steve Sokerley, had been to number one um, out of nowhere, and that was like the really beginning of, of consciousness of house music for me. Anyway, I was I was interested in it because I read another thing where you're talking about seeing Groove Rider in like ninety one, ninety two. Yeah. Which is obviously like a little bit before yeah. Jungle Drum Bass. Yeah. But you said something like he was playing really pitched up, strictly rhythm records and like really noisy think, Belgian stuff. Yeah, it and wasn't it- pitched up. It, it was all the same tempo back then. It was between 120 and 130, the, the fastest, really, just in, in the early 90s. It's probably maybe just touching over 130. So I guess they were slightly pitched mm. up. But it, it it was just the best of everything. Mm. Some of the. Street Vision stuff, it wasn't like the obvious stuff, it was some of the really deep stuff, you know what I mean? Um, you know, this idea that a couple of years before a genre really hits, like house or drum and yeah. bass or something, yeah. there's DJs who are playing yeah. lots of different styles which accumulate into kind of seeming like what that thing eventually becomes. It creates it, yeah. Yeah. I, you get people who recognise DJs and for the music they're playing, which is the most important thing for any DJ, is the music they're playing. For me, anyway, you know what I mean? They might be the best mixers, they might be the trickiest, but it's all about the music. You can be the best DJ in the world, technically, but if you're not playing the right music, I'm not interested, you know what I mean? And I think that's what DJ culture's almost always been about, and scenes have started because people have hooked up onto DJ, hooked onto DJs who've got this music that you haven't got, and um, especially producers who go out to hear these DJs, get inspired by it, and they go back in the studio to make something they've just been inspired by. And it's just this mad knock-on effect that I guess over time turned techno, house and techno into into drum and bass. It's just the way it develops, you know what I mean? And people, I guess, shut up and dance were almost doing it before I'd heard it, but it was a breakbeat and, and an old-school riff, you know what I mean? Um... And it was that was the exciting thing about it. It didn't just have to be a four four beat that, that did it. And it was a bit rougher, a bit homemade, you know what I mean? And um that what's excited me in the early nineties was the music coming out of London, a lot of it white label stuff. Uh, you know, you know, no idea what it was. Um but it was all inspired by people being into the same kind of DJs and the London sound was so much different to what it was up the north. Um I was I felt like I was on my own at times, um, especially when I was still sort of doing the, the Blackburn parties and, and the um, and the parties in Burnley and stuff. I, I was going more in that direction. I was just pulled by it where everybody else, literally everybody else, just wanted to hear Italian house music, hands in air, vocals, you know. Um, there was always that north-south split. 
um, got past the Midlands, got to Coventry, Birmingham, and they were, they were sort of connected to what was going on in the south. But as soon as you got up north, it was a bit commercial, a bit cheesier, really. And um, that was it was happening. It started happening in the Hacienda as well. It, it, I only really remember the Hacienda being good up until about ninety one, nineteen ninety one, and then. Um, some of the DJs changed and the music policy started to get a bit... Graham Park was starting to play a lot more sort of the US sound, sort of the real vocally stuff. Um, and that kind of... The North went with it almost, you know what I mean? It just, just got happier and more commercial. Um, people used to come up to me asking for e-tunes. Have you got any e-tunes? I was like, what are they? You know what I mean? Because they didn't have any effect on me, you know what I mean? I just like, it's just too much. It's too happy, you know what I mean? I, I don't transcend towards happy music i really struggle to to get into happy music and i always thought that sort of the moodier sounds of london would and the more progressive sounds of london they were trying different things you know what i mean uh it just appealed to me far more so is that why you started doing your own parties initially uh yeah i mean we we i started the friday nights in a place called uh angels in burnley it went from having nobody into having coach lords of people around from scotland all over, all over the uk um it was sellout. It was, I think, it, capacity was like six hundred, but we had eleven hundred in there every Friday for like two or three years. And the music started to change, and it it, it was that was at the same time when it was just leaving the sounds of like the Belgium sounds, and it was getting more UK, and the breakbeats were coming in more and more. Um, and it did slowly peter out because people didn't want that. It 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 become too rough for them. It become too, no, just just a bit too nasty in a way because the music was a bit nasty and really rough and um i really i was excited by it um but you could see that the demand for it was really slacking off the other dj i started the night with he went more in a commercial thing he started he decided to move to saturdays so we could separate sonically the two nights and the saturdays just went bombastic it was massive because it was just commercial as hell he played the same fucking record for 16 years pretty much you know what i mean it's ridiculous you know what I mean? in the same order you know what i mean and um but that's what people wanted, you know what I mean? So it's almost like we're fighting against um, something you just couldn't stop. And Manchester really suffered in the same way because that music attracted a, a clientele the clubs didn't want. You know, people from the surrounding areas. Uh, there was a lot of trouble in the clubs for a start. There's people bringing guns in there and stuff, so the club owners didn't want it. So the actual sound completely died in Manchester and the north. And I was working in a record shop. Eastern Block. Yeah, before Eastern Block, a place called Spinning. Oh, right. Um, where we, that, that's basically all we sold. The new jungle sound, sort of reinforced, all that kind of stuff, suburban bass, everything. And we were selling shitloads of it. A tight, we could get 100 in it and go in a week. We were selling loads of it. So the demand for the nights are there. Just couldn't get anything together. It's just really difficult to put nights together because clubs just didn't want it. Because the fear of, of the type of people that would come there and the trouble that might bring in. And it was, it was rough, it was dangerous, you know what I mean? So you can kind of appreciate where they were coming from. But it, as a DJ, it, it was impossible. I just had no gigs for, for about three or four years because it was, you know, because, you know, especially in Manchester, people wanted it in Manchester, not necessarily in Burnley, but they wanted it in Manchester. There was a good scene for it, in theory. Just couldn't get it off the ground. It took years to, to really try to get something going. you like, pretty frank in admitting that it was like part of the clientele was going on these things how did yeah. it feel from your side being a promoter and a dj and having that negatively affecting like you know bringing in authorities and stuff like that you just get on with it I mean, when it's out of your control it's out of your control and um you'd see 
other people that you knew weren't very good DJs, but because they're playing different music, they had loads of gigs, you know what I mean? And from the feedback I always got, everybody's like, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. I'm like, well, I can't because, you know, there's nobody playing this music and this is all I want to play. I don't want to play something I'm not into. And I've always been like that. If I'm not into it, I'm not playing it. Um, it's just a d- desire to to play your favourite records to people. That, to me, is what DJing's about, you know what I mean? Um, some people would just do whatever to get gigs and I'm just like, no. We'll just wait it out. We'll sit and wait it out. And I guess when it, when the jungle thing really happened in the sort of 93, 94, um, it really moved into the ghettos. Rather than the ghettos coming into town, we went into the ghettos. Um, and we there was all you know there was clubs in them places that would just open regardless. You know what I mean? They just wanted the business. Uh, I remember people walking past with sawn off shotguns and the thing there was a place called the lighthouse it was so exciting but at the same time scary as hell if people want if some people wanted to rewind they'd just pull the trigger <laughs> it's just nuts um and there was a a label called sound of the underground recording some london guys who come up i think they brought it's just they put the shy effects record out that was massive yeah. um one with apache indian yep. sort of the ridiculously so a super fast vocal thing, um, and they come up to do a um, to do a night at that venue, and they were just all hidden around the back, just scared to death. What was that? And we got used to it by then. You know, first time you hear it, you saw what the fuck. Uh, but then it just became a regular thing, and pe- people who never witnessed it before were just scared. Obviously, scared for their lives. You know, and it was just this mad place. If I look at it now. Um, I mean, I didn't even live in Manchester at the time, so I had to catch a bus from Burnley to go and play in this place and then stay in the studio because I had a studio in Manchester. Another v- event we did, we, me and my friend XTC, we were partners and we played together. Is that Mark McK- McKinley? Mark McKinley, yeah. 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 Um, we worked in the shops together. That's how we become partners. Um, we made a couple of tracks together. and We were DJ partners for a long time and we played together in, in this venue in Manchester and it was one of the first real jungle events, and it was in the city, one of the first real ones. Um, and it was rammed. We played quite early. I think we were finished by 11.30 or something. We stayed around for another 15, 20 minutes, and it was just felt like it was going to go off. It was really, really moody. Um, so we left. We walked up out the car park onto the street, sort of got on the pavement, walked past the car, and then a car come spurting around the corner, and it was a fucking drive-by. There was some we just walked past some guys, and I'm just like, they look moody as fuck. That's what I said to my mate. Um, literally within two seconds, as a car come round the window down, and somebody shooting at a thing, we're ducking behind a ducking behind a car. And it's just like, do we really need to be doing this? You know what I mean for the music we love? And the answer is yes, because there's no other options. You know what I mean? If you love that music and you want to hear it, you want to play it out. This is what we had to put up with in Manchester for a long time. Some of the London DJs wouldn't come and play. Um, it was moody. I ended up promoting in the city for six or seven years, and you won some, you lost some, but most of the time you lost because nobody wanted to pay in. So there'd be a gang of fifty people just walk up and walk through the door. Nobody could do anything. Um, there was knifings in the club. There was all kinds of things. It was ridiculously moody. Um, but a lot of people tell me they miss it. They just miss the excitement of it. You know, there's a real, real vibe in there. It's, it's, it's on fire. You know what I mean? It's dangerous as hell. But if you kept yourself to yourself, you weren't looking for any trouble. You'd necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, you'd be okay to an extent. You just knew how to, you know, you got to know how to play it, and it's not like you know what you're doing. But the, the good thing for us at the time was we were playing for the main guys, the main sort of crims, if you will. You know, what I mean? so we were looked after to an extent. You know what I mean? 
Right. Pretty crazy shit. Yeah. Yeah. So you're implying that like the the clientele at the club would like know who, who you guys are yeah. and respect you as DJs. Well, and yeah. then there'd be yeah. some form of like protection after well, that. Well, I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> we, we were never given any shit. Um, there were stories about people in there with um, with uh, bulletproof vests on and all kinds of things. You know, definitely, I've, def- I've seen a good few people waving sawn off shotguns just dancing to the music, <laughs> waving a sawn off around. Do you know what I mean? That was the 90s in Manchester. It was crazy. It was pretty wild. And, you know, if somebody asked me to do it now, I, I, I might not, you know what I mean? But at the time, it was all about the music. The music was the only thing that was important. And I'd been into pushing this music that wasn't, you know, that wasn't getting me any gigs for four or five years. Now I'm getting gigs. Am I going to turn them down? No, I'm not. You know what I mean? This is how we, this is how we develop a scene. And it did develop from there. Mm. Um, you know, Manchester's got a great history for loving music and... Um, Way before, I, I saw a video of a, a friend of mine who used to come in a record shop in Eastern Block, used to buy records, um, a video of him dancing in this club three or four years before De Hacienda got going, dancing to like Adonis and stuff like that, you know what I mean? It's a fantastic video, I watch it quite a lot, it's quite inspirational, you know what I mean? Just the fact that um, Hacienda gets the credit, but in fact some of these ghetto clubs are just, just on it completely, you know what I mean? Like playing black music, black only music for pretty much a black only audience, you know what I mean? But they were fucking miles ahead, you know what I mean? It's incredible. I've always worked in, in shops, it's pretty much a black music store we're working, we're selling hip-hop, we're selling R&B, you know what I mean? And um, it's quite interesting watching the guys come in who were the saw and, saw and hip-hop DJs react to Jungle. Like they're saying they've heard it all before, it's just our music sped up, you know what I mean, reggae and stuff, you know what I mean, and we're just like, no, you're too old, you know what I mean, just having, having fun with them. So it's just the way you can see music cycling, um, and like first and now, now, you know, certain music fashions come back in that were in when I was sort of getting into it almost, you know what I mean, it's quite interesting. So working at those stores, do that give, in what sense was that like an education for learning about the music industry, like how labels work, how distribution works, what people want to buy, how trends change and stuff like that? Um, yeah, it's just knowledge coming in all the time. It's not like I'm there to, I didn't feel like I was ever there to learn, but um, I've just been one of them people that just instantly switched on, just, just the way we could order. It's fantastic. It doesn't happen anymore. Just, just a guy would come in with a van and say, "Do you want this white label?" and would play it. And we're like, "Yeah, we'll have a hundred And he's like, "How oh, many?" You know, it does like he doesn't believe you. And literally, three or four days later, we're asking him for more. In terms of record shops, I used to love the way they were. And it was only one record deck in the shop, and you'd play a record, and there'd be twenty, thirty people in the shop. I'll have one of them. I'll have one of them. I'll have one of them. It doesn't happen like that anymore. It doesn't feel like it happens like that when I go record shopping anymore. Is that that that? That friendship doesn't seem to be there. It's like the people behind the counter and the people on the opposite side of the counter, the customers, there's more of a gap almost now, whereas as I've got so many good friends from over the years who just used to come and buy records, you know what I mean? And you're meeting people who have the same love of you, the same love of music that you have, you know what I mean? And um, before I worked in shops, I used to just like going in there because I just wanted to hear what was coming out. The guy behind the record counter was the first person to hear these records sometimes. So if you're in the record shop the most... You'd hear most of the new music because that's the first get, place you get to hear it. I remember being in Eastern Block with fifteen pounds, which would probably buy me four records at the time. I stayed in there for for two hours, just loitering, waiting to to hear something that blew me away. And I, I remember hearing Sugar Bear, "Don't Scandalize Man," an old sort of hip hop classic. It was big. It's a big hacienda tune. 
And I think at the same time, it's when a recent Santoni or the sound come out. And um, I remember going home after being in a record shop for four hours with four records and four records I just completely loved and cherished and um, still got to this day, thankfully, you know. Because um, this is around the time that you started your own labels and started putting out your own music and stuff. I just wondered whether... Well, that was two... a bit later, to oh, be okay. fair. So um, this is the thing where it's like the timeline of like knowing when you yeah, were at these places. Yeah. Just, there's no information about that. You know? No, um I didn't put music out to 94, and that's kind of when the name started to develop. I worked in record shops in 97, actually owned our own shop. I think I was involved with that for about three months and decided I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, at the time, around 97, we'd, we'd put a couple of things out. Uh, the first thing out we put out with Flex, which is quite an interesting story because we met LW, who was one of them people who worked in a van and brought the, and come into the record shop with his new records as like a, a van distribution guy, um, and we knew he made music, so we'd agreed to go over to the studio with him in Huddersfield, which is about oh, about forty five an hour an hour away in, in the car um, to make a tune with him. We'd never done it before, um, so the day before I went to make a tune. What arrived on the doorstep? A brand new Mary J. Blige twelve into the record shop with an acapella on it. It's like, right, that's going, that's going to the studio. Just, just ridiculous things like that. Um, and we made that tune in about four hours, which is pretty good for back in the day. Lee was really quick. We didn't know what we were doing. We were just pressing a few things and took the vocal. And we just made it work really, really easily. Just, you know, I remember saying to him, just change the bass line there, do that, and you know, it was done. And he added more breaks and just getting it a bit more more giddy almost or more jungly just so the brakes were all over the show and it turned out that all I ever wanted from hearing being in love with what Groove Ride were doing from 91 was to get a record in his record box that's kind of what the idea was it's all I ever wanted and um, within two weeks he was playing that playing the track we made with L Double on Kiss saying it's the best record he's heard in two years you know and that, if that wasn't enough to want to get in the studio more and try and build a career out of it then nothing ever would be you know so um for some people, it might sound kind of insane that you describe this as the first time you ever went into a studio. Did you have experience with the equipment and like no, how nothing. to work a sample? No, and that stuff? he did. We didn't. Yeah, he, sure. He ended up being like the the engineer, stroke music maker, where we just come in with a few ideas, a few samples that he hasn't got. And he, I remember having a, a Korg, a little Korg one um, W module or something, and it had this string sound on it. And as soon as I heard that string sound, like, we've got to make a tune with this string sound, and it was just a combination of the string sound. The breaks, the bass line, and the acapella. Tunes don't need much, realistically. Just that little magic feeling where you're all like, if all three are just like, yeah, this is wicked, you know, you're onto something pretty much. I think that's one of the things over my career that I know, um, just knowing when something's good and not, you know what I mean? Um, I think that's always, I've never, never really associated myself with being a technical expert on what I'm doing. It's just uh, sometimes I think I know when I've got one and I haven't. And most of the time I'm ready to throw it out in the bin because I know it's not very good. That's just the way it is. Yeah, see, I think your knowledge, even though it was completely non-technical, mm. could have been so much more important than someone who knew how to use everything. Yeah, and that kind of flips the whole thing absolutely. on its head. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, perfect example is the guy I've become a, um, a partner with, ST Files, who is... He's just one of the most gifted music makers I've ever known. He's sick, but he can't write a tune. He can't finish five minutes. He really struggles to get five. He'll send me two and a half minutes of a track. I was like, that's done. 
you've done the hard bit. He could just ne- he could never turn it into a track. So he doesn't make much music anymore. His, his career never flourished as much as it should have done. Just a, a massive talent. And if he did, I think drum and bass would be in a better place because he's sick. And as much as I've helped him over the years, he really couldn't help himself in his tracks. It was really a difficult thing for him. Where as, as being a, as somebody who DJs all the time, you just know what to do. You know what's needed. You know how to arrange it. And, and a lot of the time you don't, it doesn't matter that much. Don't let it be the main focal point. If the track's good, if you've got two and a half minutes of a good tune, make it work. You know what I mean? Um, I always had a desire to to get on with things and um, never that technical, just like, right, it sounds like it's done. I've played it out. It's working. Let's just let it go. Get on to the next thing. The excitement is getting on to the next thing. The, the hardest thing, if you keep thinking about how to finish a track is you, you probably might never finish it you never think it's finished you've just got to be able to move on um so i guess just by listening to music constantly in the record shop djing when you got home you kind of knew how tunes should be put together so um even though it was for in that instance the first time we we're in the studio it it was done like that literally i think all three of us were all djs we all knew what we wanted out of it just just drum and bass is about it's about a hit you get the hit right when it drops, everything's right, and you can just roll it out, you know what I mean? And just keep changing a few things, keep it interesting. It's about the groove and how, how much it works. Um, once you've got that, you don't have to worry so much. And um, I've never been one to focus on the, on the minute details. Some people are great at it, I can't. I just hear the bigger picture of the track and try and get it finished. That's just basically how I've always made music. Mm. You know, you had to learn from somebody. So I learned from somebody who went in the studio with L Double. I learnt from L Double, and I also learnt from ST Files, who learnt from L Double. Um, and if if you keep going that round, everybody's learning the same methods. You know, and that could continue on forever. People learn from me. You know what I mean? Um, the fact that there are different ways of of doing it now, and, and um, different ways of getting into it, only makes it more interesting in terms of what can be made. I hear people complaining that, like, well, we had to spend three thousand pounds on a sampler. We did. You know what I mean? But. I don't, I don't have to now. You know, it, it doesn't matter. You know, what what's important is if, if there's good music out there and there's people playing it, that's the important thing. And there's people trying different things. Otherwise, all the music's going to sound the same. It just is. You know what I mean? Speaking of all the music sounding the same, I, I consider myself a fan of drum and bass. Yeah. But being too young to have experienced any of it and not being in England, yeah, means that the perspective on it is just completely different. Yeah. And. You know, as the 90s roll on into the 2000s and all these subgenres start appearing, whether it's just because of critics coming up with them or whether they're real or not, you know, yeah. you got Tech Step, Autonomic, yeah. Liquid. Yeah. But so why do you think so many different tags and names got put on drum and bass specifically? I, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't make them them um, names, but um, it's never was important to me. In fact, it... it made it more difficult for somebody like me almost, you know what I mean? Because I wasn't part of that. I wasn't necessarily part of that. Or people would put me in the, I mean, the liquid bracket, you know what I mean? So, hey, we're doing a liquid event. And I was like, I don't really play liquid, you know what I mean? So it, it just separate it for the crowd almost, you know what I mean? You'd have a certain crowd going to listen to that and a certain crowd going to listen to that. Well, is it not better just to be able to hear a bit of everything, you know what I mean? And put it in a way, in a context that when it's time to hear that particular kind of sound, it gets played, and when it's not, it's time to hear the other one or whatever, you, you can hear that. The break, the breakdown of genres has, ma- has made it particularly difficult, but I guess sometimes it's inevitable because scenes just go off in the wrong direction, music goes off in the wrong direction. You know, I'm talking about me liking 
playing what I like. I like 10% of drum and bass, 90% of it I'm not into at all. So I can turn up at gigs and I know nobody's going to like my music. I just know that's for a fact, you know what I mean? Um, sometimes I get I get given the, the martyr gig where we need, we need to try something deep, you know what I mean? We need to try something that, that, that can sort of get our crowd that are into the, the shit stuff, into the good stuff. Come on, Marcus, you can do it. I'm just like, you know, I only get found out. I only find out about this gig when I actually turn up for the gig. I'm just like, as soon as I hear that, I'm just like, no, because it's quite painful, you know what I mean? It's just like, you, you know you're going to struggle and... You've only got certain records in your box because they're the records you like, and I don't want to put anything in there that I, just to please somebody. It, it doesn't work like that for me, you know. And, and I don't think I've had such a long career because I've been trying to please people. It's because I've I've tried to please myself and push something forward, you know. What I mean, and something I believe in, um, and that's kind of worked on my behalf. But because of that, you do take a few gigs like that where it's just like, right, we need to try and change the sound of this club, you know. What I mean, it's it's just not that it's just not a fun gig that it happens occasionally. Yeah. So this big record you did with ST files on thirty one records, yeah. How you make me feel, yeah. It's funny reading the Discogs comments on that one. That clearly <laughs> had a it. pretty big effect on people. <laughs> yeah. um, but was that one of these tracks which you know went on to define these subgenres that we're talking about? Is that kind it, of a track which I guess, pigeonholed you in a way? Yeah, or something? people maybe call it the first liquid funk record. I don't know. Um, it wasn't. A, it wasn't anything. We weren't intent. You never do intend to do anything when you make a tune. Um, again, that was another one that just fell into into place so quickly. Done in in a night quite easily. When we were going back the second night to finish it off and thinking it doesn't really need anything. It was just a record that we were about at the time. It was the music was quite hard. Ed Russian Optical, which was fantastic music. It was really progressive. It, it was amazing. I used to play a lot of that and Doinger and stuff like that and Fotec. It was all that, which was all incredible music. And then on the other side of it was the the, uh, the good-looking stuff, which again was incredible music, but, um, but was just almost like too far away from the other stuff, really, to, to, to all sit in. We didn't necessarily go in the studio to make a tune like that, but that's where our minds were at the time. Like it... I love the music side of it, but I like the energy side of it, and it's just trying to find that that middle ground. And um, it's almost like once we made that record, we found our sound. That that track allowed us, because of the way it got received, it allowed us to have confidence enough to, to do exactly what we wanted to do. And then there was a, a sweet period for a couple of years where we, whatever we did um, was just people considered it to be a, like massive tracks. You know what I mean? When I made that track, I had had Groove Rider with the biggest label in drum and bass wanting it. Fabio wanted it for his label. Dot Scott wanted it for his label. Literally within two days, had phone calls from all three of them. So it was like, well, we know we're getting somewhere here. We always had the intention of starting our label, but we kind of figured that the best way to do it would be to do three or four tracks with these labels, get you the profile you need for people to recognise the name, and then you can start your label. So I think the label started in 2001. Up until today, it's, it's still been quite successful, you know what I mean? It just felt like it was the right way to do it, just to build the profile, just to get your name like a household name before you start another venture that people, you know, people always say, as soon as you meet, wow, we're going to start a label. It's like, I think the best thing to do for any artist is to get a profile. It's not hard to run a label. 
but there's no point doing it if nobody knows what your music's about. So, you know, as far as an artist's concerned, you need to get that profile out there and people recognise what you're about before you actually start having grandeur plans of doing anything else. I would suggest concentrate on the music's the most important thing. And some people don't want to start a label, and I respect that, so they can concentrate on the music. Some labels are better than others at promoting, which is more important almost than the money these days, you know, and there's so many aspects to it. And I, I, I've never run the label with the intention of it being the biggest thing. I've always run it by myself or, or with ST Files at the time. Um, never really wanted to have to hire anybody, which would then suggest we'd have to put more music out, music we don't like. Didn't want to go down that, that road, you know what I mean? Just wanted to, if we hear something, we release it. Not necessarily sign artists if they wanted to go elsewhere and do it. We just have a good deal where we make sure everybody gets paid and we're releasing music we'd buy ourselves and that's kind of the only thing we ever thought we don't ever want to have to put a track out to keep the money coming in or whatever you know what I mean uh, I've seen it happen to other labels and it, it it kind of waters down the actual sound you know what I mean and it's never really been anything that has interested me at all mm. it's not a money thing label it's just a, it's just a way of, of representing what you're into more than anything else just it's another facet to what it's all about almost so with the solution parties was that? Do they exist before they were in fabric? And was this all oh, coming? Yeah. Th- and this was like coming off the back of the label gaining steam? Yeah, or? yeah. It was. It was all at the same. I think the first solution part. It was in two thousand and one. We did it in. We did it in Manchester. I got Marky to come and do me a favour. I'd played in Brazil a few times for Marky in the late, in the early two thousands. Probably no. I might have only just done it for once with him at that time in Brazil and. Did it for peanuts. It was like two hundred US dollars or something. But it was in Brazil. Hey, who cares? You know what I mean. Um, so he agreed to come and play a gig for us for a hundred quid in Manchester, <laughs> um, and we probably turned about three hundred people away that night. It was just before he got massive. We had a really good relationship with him anyway. Me and him were pretty friendly at the time, and we're just like, right, Mark is up for it. Let's just do a party. It was always something we wanted to do, and it defines what we're into. I'd been promoting in Manchester for seven or eight years before that, not f- probably five or six years before that, and I felt like I was starting to put DJs on I didn't want to hear. Again, it's the same kind of principle. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to represent anything, anything at all, That if I'm not into it, regardless of what the financial income might be. it's just It, it just doesn't work like that. For, I don't want to feel like I'm a fraud. It's important to me, I don't, for whatever reason, you know what I mean? So I stopped doing that. I just uh, the guy was with us said if you want to carry on you can carry on it was doing well I think the last party we did it had like 1500 people in there or something but um, just hated it just hated the music um, it's beginning to sort of dislike it so it, what was wrong with the music? just the DJs that we'd booked with the popular DJs I'm not going to name any names for obvious reasons you know what I mean but, but like were, with the they sound they weren't playing my, my the, the brand of drum and bass I was into you know it was a successful event, but it just the sound of it wasn't really what I was into. I didn't, I, I didn't play anything like that. I didn't remotely like anything like that. So why should I? Why should I represent it? So, and and, and so it's like a gap of about a year and a half. I'm like, right, this is perfect. Let's, the label's got. We've got a profile. The label's starting to get a profile. Mark is coming to play with us. We just got really friendly with Caliber. I'm just like, this is perfect. Let's just do it. Wanted somewhere so we could introduce Calibre to Manchester because out of all the people I'd met through drum and bass and got close with, he, to me, was, was the most talented person in, in the whole of music I'd ever met. And um, he, 
didn't like DJing. He was always really nervous and uncomfortable. So I wanted to help him, A, by helping him get his music out, but B, by putting him in an environment where he could play his music, where he wouldn't feel as pressured as maybe some other places, you know what I mean? And that's solution was a, a lot based on that, on, on being able to, to help him, but at the same time for us to have him um, and build something together because um, his music just just always has always blown me away, always. So we're almost like getting to the techno phase, almost, because that's like mid to the late 2000s you started dabbling with that, did you? Maybe 2009 or 10. Is, I think 2010 might have been the first release. So maybe I've was- always dabbled in it. That was the thing, but I, I, I could never finish a track. I could. I've always dabbled because I've always loved it. Even like working through the drum and bass times in the record shop in Eastern, but we were next to the house counter, so I've always collected house music. I've always been interested in it. Never sort of. It's never left my heart to an extent. There's always been certain techno records where I've got to have that. You know what I mean? So I, I wouldn't buy many. I buy probably half a dozen a year, but half a dozen every year, right, right up until today. Realistically, you know what I mean? So it was always there, but I always struggled to. I could easily write a four-bar, a four-bar loop, just easy, a sixteen-bar loop, whatever. It was that was the easy bit. The rest of it, I just couldn't do. I couldn't, like we're saying about making drum and bass. I just couldn't because I wasn't experienced enough in in playing it at that time. I didn't feel like I could arrange it properly or the limitations of the software I was using, which was Logic at the time, just got me stuck in a rut and I couldn't get out of it. Um, and it was a combination of of hearing what was happening with the post dubstep scene, which felt like the early nineties again a little bit, and me getting my head round Ableton, that it just all fell into place just instantly, just like okay, this is how you do it because mm. the way it works with Ableton, it doesn't work in the same arrangement method as you would with Logic. So I could actually just recording, having a go at just recording a groove for five minutes. And I'd finished loads of tunes that I knew were crap, but I was getting in the mindset of finishing them just so when it when I had a good one, I'd be confident enough to say, right, let's let's get this finished. And um so for two or three years when I started to learn Ableton, that was my main focus was just to, to try and get try and make some records that you know that I used to love. Uh, the idea of the same sort of feeling of records that I used to love when when I was growing up. Because you know, inevitably, in the sort of late teens, they're always the most exciting times of your, your life. Almost, it was for me anyway. You know what I mean? So, just wanted to get that feeling back. Almost. You've, you've talked about learning how to produce it in a satisfying way and having various sorts of dissatisfaction with where drum and bass was going. But was there also an aspect of like meet, meeting sort of people from the techno world, which helped like ease this process of moving over? Because, you know, you, you had you had a record on Martin's label yeah. and then on Apple Bloom's label yeah. and then Clock and stuff yeah. like that. And yeah. you did, you're not just running into them at drum and bass parties. I've never met right? most of them. I'd only met Martin. I'd only yeah. ever met Martin. We put Martin's first record out. So in another way, I agreed to put Trevino's first record out with Martin. It just worked in that way. And um got a funny relationship, me and Martin. We get sometimes we get on well and other times we have a slight disagreement. You know what I, mean? I think we're both as stubborn as each other, which is, you know, I I've not got a problem with that. It's a quite interesting relationship. But I, I I liked what he'd done. He did it before me, you know what I mean? He'd moved from drum and bass and sort of wisps his way through dubstep into this techno world and I you know, perhaps he was the catalyst in a way. It's like, fucking hell, he's done it. You know what I mean? Um, I'd like to do that. 
you know, so so just just having him as a, a point of reference for my music and saying, "What do you think of this? What do you think of this?" And he'd be like, "Yeah, that's that. That's good. Let's put this out." You know, and that 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 really helped enormously. To be fair, and I always I'd, I always send him everything first, and um, I think he'd get over, I think he got overwhelmed by the amount of music that all of a sudden got fired at him. Uh, I just loved it. I just really enjoyed being in the studio. For years, I hated going in the studio. So in mid two thousands, struggled for ideas. Logic just seemed to hold me back. Um, really struggled to make music for a long time, and just the way that the drum and bass was sort of floating in between sounds and wasn't necessarily grabbing me the way that um, it used to do. It was a bit of a difficult period, really. Still had plenty of gigs, and some of the gigs obviously were great. When I look back on it, it was Caliber almost that got me through because it was his music on a. He'd make 200 tracks a year, so I'd get plenty of his music, you know what I mean? And then it was the things that got influenced from Calibre in the mid-2000s the mid that kept it going, realistically. Um, I wasn't looking for a way out, but I was looking for something that gave me a bit more inspiration. And I guess just the fact that I'd seen Martin do it and now I'd learned how to use Ableton, it was just like, wham, I just want to be in the studio all the time, can't wait to get in there. Just creating, creating, because that's what Ableton does. It just allows you to create without actually thinking too much about the the process of creation. You know, it takes all that pain away, so you can just have fun and it become fun. And I just started to love making music again, uh, probably for the first time, really. Because you know, after all these years, I think I started to not think a bit more about how to do it. Um, I had a bit more confidence. I've never been overly a confident person. You just get struck in situations. You just have to deal with them. Um, I guess after all these years, you just understand a bit more about what you're doing and it's my chosen career path. So I've got to make the most of it. And all of a sudden I'm loving it. I'm just loving making it. So Martin just got given far too many tunes to, to, than what he could handle. Um, a lot of them weren't that great, to be fair, and he, he was quite polite. <laughs> put, it, put it that way. And then I'd, I'd done this tune that I was just sure Ben Clark would like. And I know Martin had a connection. Martin really helped me out. Martin had a connection. I just said, do you mind if you give me his email? Him and Marcel Detman. And another, that's another interesting, Marcel Detman's resident advisor mix in like 2007, 2008. Just, it had this sound, slightly rough, techno but not banging. Just reminded me again of the early 90s and that was really quite influential in me saying right I'm back into this music and then um, discovering Shed things like that and Shed for me was just like Techno's Dillinger almost you know what I mean just making these fucking records that were amazing um, from 2007 onwards I was just like I've got to get into this I've got to learn how to do this properly so when I sent this record to Ben I just felt like it would be a, a Ben and Marcel thing. I sent it to them both at the same time and literally Ben just got straight back to me saying, who the fuck are you? What's this track? You know what I mean? Pretty much, you know what I mean? Can you send me some more? And I sent him a shitload more and he didn't like any of them. Just like, oh no, here we go. You know what I mean? So then the, then the challenge was for me to make a Clockworks 12 because he wanted one track, but he needed two others. So for six months, I was just writing text. I was like, I'm really, because I don't think, when I was started, it, it was necessarily techno that I was making. It was kind of in between post dubstep house, Detroit techno, but not really German sounding. You know, what I mean? nothing really, really minimal techno. So I had to kind of learn how to get my head around that, um, learn more about it, see if I liked it for a start. You know, what I mean, and um, just just discovering it properly. Um, I just love the 
the fact that it's the purest form of a of a, a really good groove if you can if you can nail a proper techno groove you know what I mean it's 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 the basic and the most pure form of a groove realistically and that's what really got me into it but I had to really work hard to try and find something that Ben would like. In the meantime, I'd made loads of tracks that he didn't like, so I'm still going through this process of just really enjoying it, and I like the challenge, I'm going to fucking nail this if it kills me, you know what I mean? And there must have been like 20 clock, 20 things with clock one, clock two, clock three, it went on for ages, and he's like, no, no. <laughs> but it didn't bother me, I actually thought it was quite fun, you know what I mean? And I had this thing in my head like, I want to give him what he wants, but I don't want to give him what he wants. I want him to like something that I want to give him. You know, so I had to try and find this middle ground for ages. Managed to do it, but, you know, it's, it's the same as me. I, I do it with some artists for my label. I know what it's like. You want your label to sound exactly how you want it to sound or you, you, you want to be able to say, this is the best quality I can get out of this artist or whatever. So... Not to the same extent, but I've done it with other artists where I've signed a track that's fucking amazing, but it's taken ages for a B-side or whatever because they just don't quite nail it. Mm. So I knew where I stood because I'd done that to other people, but that just spurred me on. It's like I, I really want to be successful at this. I really, I really, I really want to be on that fucking label because it's a cool label and it's only had eight releases in ten years or whatever it was. You know what I mean? It's a good look for me. And I like all his records. I like everything that's on that label. So it just makes sense. So I just kept kept pounding away for ages. Was it the same thing with DJing in terms of when you started playing like sub 130 BPM? Did you have a similar feeling of refreshment to playing records as you did to producing music? Uh, that's half the reason why I wanted to do it as well is I don't get nervous at drum and bass clubs. I don't, I don't necessarily fear anything. Um, it's all quite comfortable. It's just a good thing. I'm confident. I do a good job, mostly, you know what I mean? But I wanted to put myself back in a position where I go into gigs and I'm like, I'm nervous. I don't really I don't really know what to expect. When was the last time you felt nervous playing techno? <sighs> when was the last time I played techno? <laughs> <laughs> you still get it. I like it. You know, I'm still on edge, you know what I mean? Um, and um, I, I've always found that the reason recently why drum and bass has, has been so comfortable is there's a small amount of music that i like so in any given month if there's anything more than 10 or 15 new tracks in my box in a month that's a good month when it comes to playing house and techno and because it is house and techno because i like it both it can be 10 times that and i don't know what the fuck i, I, I know I'm, I'm looking on what is this i've got a practice all the time not to practice so i'll know how to do it so i know what the fuck they sound like i put them in there i put them in that box for a reason but i don't know what they sound like because there's so many of them there's so much music and it that's that's if, if i've had one thing struggle it's that it's knowing knowing all the tunes it's too much good music out there it really isn't sometimes i have to think i have to say to myself well maybe i just need to focus on one sound you know what I mean um, I think that's what people do to an extent but then sure. I quite like it all you know what I mean I, I, it's, it's, it, yeah because you were saying with the drum and bass where it's like you know you've got your producers who you know you like sending you stuff and you're just kind of like sorted for looking for music yeah, yeah you know you've been doing the techno thing for a few years now yeah there aren't like any of those go-to producers who are just feeding you stuff and you're no, there like, aren't really no interesting yeah but then I've not really put myself out there trying to find them. I, I, I've quite liked, another thing, I've quite liked the idea of shopping or going online or, or walking into a record store. I don't 
buy that many records, if I'm being totally honest. But um, just the idea of discovery, going out looking, trying to find your own sound almost, you know what I mean? And I think if you keep relying on certain people, you, you can end up sounding like them or somebody else who plays their records, you know what I mean? Um, certainly, I do certainly have my favourite producers, you know what I mean? But I've not necessarily tried to get to know them that well or anything. It's, it's time's an issue as well, you know. I, I spend so much time in the studio trying to make music, and trying to do drum and bass, and run the label, and have a girlfriend, and you know, live in Berlin or whatever, and trying to enjoy myself. That it, it's actually quite difficult to find time to to widen the circle. Almost, you know, what I mean, the circle's almost big enough as it is. You know what I mean? It's it's still a bit of a discovery for me in 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 terms of. I don't know what everything is. I just don't feel like I, I know half of it. It's quite strange. There's so much music. Every time you're like, well, I've never heard of this guy before. When you hear something, it's like, Where, where's this guy come from? It turns out it's been going longer than you, Marcus. You know what I mean? It's just, you know, it's, I, I find it exciting. But I remember reading you saying that writing parts wasn't difficult at all. The aspect that was difficult was getting the sonic aspect right. Yeah, mix downs and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Again, I'm not... See, see from, from like that. an outside perspective, you know, I'd assume that someone who's been making John bass for years, their mix-down technique is going to be pretty solid Yeah. as far as techno goes. Yeah. So it was kind of surprising to read that a little bit. Uh, my mix-downs in John bass aren't very good. I'm not very good at it. And it's a lot of it's trial and error. A lot of it's common sense in a way in, in some forms but then there's, there's certain techniques that i think in the last 10 years levels have raised ridiculously in terms of production values people have learned a lot more whether it's because there's more information out there or the way some software works or whatever there that the levels of, of production have increased dramatically um, whereas i think i could sit quite comfortably with everybody else 10 years ago to an extent, not be the best, but be within that bracket. Um, I think now it, it it's a whole new ball game. My ears aren't as good as I'm not blaming my ears, but my ears are nowhere near as good. I don't have the I, my ears haven't got the lose the top end off. Yeah, but just the fatigue to get tired yeah. quick. My ears get tired quickly. Sometimes I just can't hear shit. I've got to turn it off for a bit. Um, but it's not that. It's I never got taught it. I don't know the techniques. I, I learned off ST Files who never got taught it, but was good at it. He did all the mix downs. I didn't do them. So when I had to do them for my own music, that was the biggest learning curve. I had to be, you know, I had to just had to keep going through trial and error and trying to work out how to do it. And now he here's my mix downs. He's like, oh, have you done that? And I was like, maybe I don't know how I can mix down well. It doesn't feel like a kind of everything's version. 10, 7, 15, 30, you know what I mean? Just going to keep doing it. Sometimes it feels like I haven't put a kick drum in there where there is one in there. You can't fucking hear it when you mix, when you're having a mix between other tunes, you know what I mean? It just seems like no two tunes are the same. It's really hard to to get something sounding good. You can't just instantly do it. And a lot of the times I think I've cracked it and then I just basically have a mix and then... I'm listening to my tune like, where's the bass? It's not there. There's no tops on this either, is there? No. In fact, the mid-range's not even coming through. It just feels like I don't know anything at times. Um, so it's just, I just keep going. I keep comparing it to others and try and get as close as possible just by comparing. And I'm probably not doing a lot of things right, mm. but I just got to get it in close. I just want to get it close, close enough to 
as a DJ, you can play it. Yeah. Because um, now it's like you can have like a good idea, but if you haven't like stacked up three claps on top of each other <laughs> and parallel compress them yeah. and things like that, it's just yeah. not going to stand up against no, everything it, else it you're playing. It seems that, yeah. I, I, um, as I say, I, I don't, I don't like doing that. I don't like putting sounds on top of each other and stuff. But, it, you know, it's all about the frequencies. It's getting the right frequencies to stand out um, and the wrong frequencies to disappear and so they're not there. Um, and some people met music or some people start a track with that in mind and I've never done that. I think, you know, the most important thing is a vibe and then you try and get the best out of that vibe you can. Um, so I think probably I start tunes that sound that are going to sound shit. They're never going to sound good, you know what I mean? Be- just because of the, the sounds I've used with each other or whatever. Um, because of the mood of the track I want it to be and stuff like that. Um, I, I sometimes overproduce tracks, you know, it's just really trying to get the best out of it. Sometimes you can kill it by doing that, by, you know, maybe the bass, it's not the right bass drum, maybe it needs a louder one or a bassier one or something. I think about it too much and I think when you start thinking about it too much, you kind of overcomplicate it somehow. Sometimes the rough mixes are the best. And I like a lot of tunes that sound rough, realistically, but it's an art to make it sound something rough and good, which is really difficult. It's fucking impossible, I think. I don't think I'll ever get any better at it. I would, you just you just seem to learn one or two things every time you do a new mix, almost, or you pick something up off of somebody or, or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, best thing I ever got taught was if you put good sounds in, you'll get good sounds out. That, that's quite obvious, you know what I mean? But it's not always worked for me, you know what I mean? 